Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Coming up this hour, Pauline Hansen, Utah resident, and her very interesting book, Patchwork Reality, Happily Married to a Schizophrenic. First, a couple of emails that have come in responding to a couple of topics that we've treated recently. This is from uh, Paula, and uh, she says, Thank you for bringing more light to the air pollution problem. I enjoyed your show this morning. I'm a Utah resident who's actually moving out of the state for this next month as a result of this problem. I'm pregnant, and this contributed to my decision. I don't need a scientist to tell me when I look out my window that the air quality is affecting health. I can see it and feel it. Thanks again. Please have more on this topic. And, uh, Paula, we certainly will as we go along. Thanks for listening. This is from uh, Derek. Uh, It's a long email. I won't read you all of it, but to interesting points. UPR has devoted a fair amount of airtime to discussions of Utah's air quality recently, which is great because it's an important issue that affects all of us. It's evident that we have serious haze issues and immediate health impacts for many of Utah's residents. I'm writing to challenge the network to approach this issue a little more scientifically. Today I heard programming that mentioned some aspects of air quality and then mentioned a few pollution sources without explaining the differences or why certain types had more impact on air quality. At the end was a challenge to listeners to look for ways to curb unnecessary driving and to use public transportation. That's all well and good, but I wish that we could break down the problem more systematically. And then he uh, proceeds to uh, break it down and urges us uh, to um, approach this uh, in a scientific manner. Uh, Derek, we certainly will, and thank you for the suggestion. He ends, uh, thank you for taking time to read this message and for your consistently high quality of reporting. Thank you so much, Derek. For responding, you can certainly respond to this on uh, this topic or any others at upraxcess at gmail.com. And uh, here's an email that we received during our broadcast from the state capitol in the opening day of the legislature on Monday. This is from Janice. And uh, I read the first part of her email, but Janice, I apologize, it never got to the second part of your email. So I'll read it here. Someone also mentioned large families and the tax breaks they received. That was Senator Gene Davis, and he is uh, proposing. Uh, perhaps uh, shifting more of the burden, uh, in in other words, eliminating some tax breaks for people with large families, uh, pay more for the schooling since they provide more students. Uh, She says, I raised 11 children. The thing they forgot to mention is that because of being a very large family, we pay much more in taxes because we also use more, so we pay more in sales tax. So thank you for that, uh, Janice. Keep the comments coming. And uh, we will certainly have more shows, I'm sure, on air quality. We turn now to the subject for today. For the first 14 years of their marriage, Utah residents Curtis and Pauline Hansen had it all. Laughter, babies, vacations, and ball games. But the nine years that follow define their future. It all begins with a dream. Curtis believes his dream to be direct revelation, that they will receive a very large sum of money. But to receive it, they must play and win what's revealed to Curtis as the game, a test to prove their faithfulness to each other. Curtis's competitiveness in the game becomes extreme, requiring removal of household possessions. He even refuses to speak to their five children because they're spies. Pauline finally breaks down, tells her parents about the events she's been living through, events Curtis has sworn her to secrecy about. With chemical exposure in mind, they get Curtis to a doctor. The diagnosis is paranoid schizophrenia. Pauline Hansen's new book, Patchwork Reality, Happily Married to a Schizophrenic, is a true account of her decade in the dark and her family's return to hope and happiness. Uh, and uh, that'll be available, uh, available pre-order right now at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It launches on February 11th, and an official book launch will be held at the Barnes & Noble in St. George on February 15th from 1 to 4 p.m. 
Pauline Hansen, welcome to Access Utah. Thank you. Uh, very interesting book, and it treats a, a topic, I think, of interest to us all. And, and many people, I think, go through this, and I'm, I'm guessing you've been hearing from from some people, or, or will, as, as the book launches. Uh, I wonder if, if you have a, a copy of the book with you? I do. I have it on my laptop, yes. Uh, great. Uh, I wonder if you could, it's, uh, you have a brief prologue, which really sets this up and kind of gives a history here. I wonder if you'd read the prologue for us. Oh, sure. Yeah, it is just kind of a history, I guess, of how my, how my family thinks, how I think. And so it kind of gives an idea of how I was able to go nine years not detecting that my husband had par- paranoid schizophrenia, partly because the, the symptoms were so mild at first and such a natural part of life that were, was acceptable. And it really wasn't until the last six months that things became the kind of symptoms you generally hear about from a schizophrenic. Okay, so the prologue says, examples have followers, example has more followers than reason. We unconsciously imitate what pleases us and approximate to the characters we most admire. In this way, a generous habit of thought and of action carries with it an incalculable influence. Christian Nestel Bovee. Every day while I was growing up, I watched as my mom put everyone else's needs, especially my dad's, before her own. Mom would hold dinner until dad came home, shush everyone if he fell asleep in his chair, and live with faded paint on the walls because the smell of a fresh coat bothered him. The five of us kids shared one bathroom, but we learned to wait if Dad was in there. Mom strictly forbade us to disturb him, even when we suspected he was only using the time to catch up on Reader's Digest. My mom's devotion ran deeper, though. She trusted my dad explicitly in religion, in parenting, and in every other area. She believed in him and his ability to lead our household. My dad, in turn, was totally devoted to my mother. At one of my worst moments as a preteen, after my mom and I had argued about something or other, I yelled in frustration that I hated her. It was uncommon for me to do something like that, and with concern, my dad came in my room to talk to me. The moment is seared indelibly in my memory. He didn't yell or even get mad. He cried, and my dad seldom cried. I never again, regardless of my frustration, told my mother that I hated her. Once I matured, I wanted what my parents had, to fill my mother's same role as wife in the life of my future husband. It was part of a long-standing, unspoken tradition passed on from her own mother, as well as from aunts and friends, and I considered myself privileged to be the next in line for the legacy. Alan Watts said, We seldom realize that our most private thoughts and emotions are not actually our own, for we think in terms of languages and images which we did not invent, but which were given to us by our society. So it was with me. My desire to follow in my mother's submissive footsteps wasn't so much a conscious thought as it was the natural result of my, of my upbringing. Once I married, I would honor and sustain my husband just as my mother and grandmother had theirs, and in return, I hoped to gain the respect and lo- loyalty of my husband, just as I knew these existed between my own parents and grandparents. It didn't occur to me then, and in fact for many years afterward, that my husband might be a fallible man that he could be capable of the kinds of lapses in health or judgment that would make it difficult to trust him completely was an idea I had never entertained, which is probably why I was so blindsided when, 20 years down the road, I find myself in exactly that situation. Yeah, I think that, you know, that strikes a chord. I think uh, at least, I don't know, the, the new generation coming up, you you maybe wouldn't have many young women um, 
you know, seeking that uh, particular kind of life, but it, it's it's a tradition passed down. And uh, if you can find a good man who adores you, then it uh, sounds like a pretty good life. Yes, true. <laughs> and and you did. You and I did. Yes. Uh, you you and Curtis met at a dance, I believe. This is in the yeah. St. George area. That's correct. Um, and we're we're married a few months later. Yeah, it only took us seven months to. Yeah. Realized we wanted to be together forever. <laughs> now, you grew up uh, a little bit out in the country. He grew up in St. George. Is that yes, the case? Yes, that's right. Um, and, and you did. You, you described your marriage as not perfect, but pretty great. Yes, and it was. You know, it was normal as far as marriages go. You know, the regular arguments about finances and disciplining the kids. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, uh, you described yourself as being very trusting. You, you looked for the best in people, and, and Curtis was more critical. Yeah, that's, that's definitely how our marriage began. Um, very trusting, and uh, I have to watch myself. And then, yeah, he, he's definitely more critical, but more so at the first of our marriage. And he worked at the school district. And yes. you worked for UPS, I believe. At that time, At that when time. he mm-hmm. first, when the books begins, yes. Yeah. So along come five children. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> sort of the standard two years apart. <laughs> and this is all very familiar to to a lot of people, I'm sure, in in Utah and other places. Uh, so, but but a pretty good life. Uh, Curtis is a good husband, right? Good father. Yes. Very much so. <laughs> um, and some financial strain, you know, but but not excessive. And you, you have to look for, you know, if you shop carefully and everything and uh, look for free entertainment, but, uh, but life's pretty good. Yes. So um, this this begins the problem. And, and so that's 14 years, right, of, of, of a pretty good life. Right. Yeah. The first 14 years. So I built a lot of trust in him and we built a lot of loyalty and companionship and, and, you know, and so 14 years had gone by with just the normal up and downs of, you know, married life and children and just whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This begins with a dream Curtis has, I believe. Yeah. Tell us about that. Okay. In 2001, um, he... It wasn't uncommon for him to receive, you know, some some sorts of revelation or inspiration or he, just feelings or gut instincts or things that he would say, you know, I really feel like this or I, I feel like we need to do this. And so it's common in our family, and it was a way that he was kind of the head of our family and let, led us that way. And so this extraordinary dream, though, came along, and he said it was a hundred times more powerful and significant than anything he had ever experienced. And so I kind of marked that as the time that this uh, this whole episode began, just because that's when he began having more grandiose experiences and thoughts. And it wasn't until later that I realized a lot of those thoughts are are symptoms of um, schizophrenia, but at the time it just seemed so natural because he, he was in awe. He had such an amazing experience, and he had such a, a, a wondrous look in his eyes when he would tell me about it. So it felt sacred rather than delusional, you know. Mm. And so I didn't suspect anything strange. It was more just 
fascinating and interesting and something I couldn't fathom why was happening, but, you know, that's where I kind of mark the beginning of how everything else built upon that. And this does have religious overtones, doesn't it? He, he, he presented this in, in a kind of a religious context uh, as, as revelation. Definitely, the, the yeah, received, and yeah. that's why I didn't really suspect anything out of the ordinary. Uh, so this goes along and, and intensifies. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, the game. What, what is the game? What did he think the game was? Well, it wasn't something that he actually put together at first. It, it, it sort of was, he says, revealed to him little by little. Uh, but the game was essentially uh, just uh, something that was set up by, he feels like, a, a, a gentleman in the community that he would never tell me the name of. And he said it was just some, um, a, a way to test us and our, let's see, I do have notes, but <laughs> our ability to stay together and remain as a couple. And the game was trying to upset that to see if they could. And so it was, that was their goal. And it's kind of really complicated, but mm. it actually is the overarching storyline and so it ties everything in the book together and the book explains it really well but it's kind of not something you can exactly explain in a nutshell because yeah. it is quite complicated and is is this as you've learned i'm sure you've you know <laughs> learned about paranoid schizophrenia is this this kind of typical you have these uh, a kind of um, a construct if you will to on which the person who's suffering from this uh, I guess is it gets in, d deeply involved. The, it's it's typical to believe that there there are you know groups of of people that are sort of you know out to get you or what you might say just um, pitted against you in some in some way and it's always in a in, in a different way but this is how he had created his delusions. And it made sense to him. Yeah, and it seems to make perfect sense to him. He, he's always very certain. About, you know, oh, about absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one thing that made it hard for me as a wife, because he would constantly say, I promise I know what I'm talking about. Trust me. I know this is real, you know. And so it made it hard because I had built such a trust in him. And for 14 years, you, you could trust him. Absolutely. Right, yeah, so that, that, would, that would build up. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back with Pauline Hansen, we'll uh, develop this a little more. And, uh, and of course, we'll talk about uh, uh, the, the point at which uh, Pauline Hansen uh, finally goes to her parents. Uh, she's she just, just, I guess, had it at that point, uh, looks for some help. And uh, finally, the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. We'll ask them about their life today as well. Very interesting book. It's about a family... Uh, struggling with the father's paranoid schizophrenia, but for nine years they don't know what's going on. They don't have a diagnosis. The book is Patchwork Reality, Happily Married to a Schizophrenic. And it's available for pre-order right now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and it'll be released February 11th. A book launch will be held on February 15th at Barnes & Noble in St. George, Utah. That's from 1 to 4 in the afternoon. 
Uh, the book is about Utah residents Curtis and Pauline Hansen and their children, and one family's nine-year um, trip through, uh, through undiagnosed paranoid schizophrenia. We'll have more following the break. Utah State University Online was recently recognized by U.S. News & World Report for its online bachelor's degree program based upon student engagement, faculty credentials, peer reputation, student services, and technology. More than 200 universities were ranked and included public, private, and for-profit institutions. Congratulations to USU for its recent recognition. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering Jewish rye, polenta cheese bread, and ciabatta sandwich buns. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with uh, Utah resident Pauline Hansen. Uh, she and her husband Curtis, their five children, lived in uh, St. George area. And for 14 years, life was great. Uh, some ups and downs, but a good marriage. Then uh, 2001, I believe it is, uh, Curtis begins to uh, exhibit uh, some, some odd behaviors. Uh, what he believes is the game, a test to prove the family's faithfulness to each other. And his competitiveness in the game becomes extreme, requiring removal of household possessions. He even refuses to speak to their five children. Eventually, uh, Pauline Hansen seeks help from her parents. They get uh, Curtis into a doctor and the diagnosis, paranoid schizophrenia. The book is Patchwork Reality, Happily Married to a Schizophrenic. And uh, this will launch on February 11th. And a book launch will be held uh, at the Barnes & Noble in St. George, February 15th from 1 to 4 p.m. Available for pre-order right now at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. It's out from Cedar Fort. Uh, Pauline Hansen, um, this got to the point, and this was, this was interesting, there's kind of some comic overtones. I, I hope you don't take <laughs> offense to that. But, but Curtis uh, begins to... Um, it's called the verdict, right? He he would remove household objects to the garage, and then look for cars passing <laughs> on the street. Tell us about that. Okay. Yeah, he had a really complicated system of uh, removing household items. He felt that that was part of uh, a way we could win the game. He felt like anything that had been given to us or had been influenced in any way by someone on the opposing side. He felt that getting rid of that would increase our chances in the game. And I was at the, finally at the point where I just had to let go and trust and have faith that this was going to work out because I, I couldn't fathom what was going on, what was wrong. And I just had this instinct that I knew I just had to go with it and just play it to the end or else it would never end. And so... I actually just let go of things and <laughs> a lot of things. So I could even read a little excerpt from the y book. Yes, that'd be great. If you'd like me to. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see if I can. And by the way, while you're finding that, uh, th th there were he uh, Curtis had some good motives here, right? He he thought if he won the game, he'd he'd receive a lot of money. You'd receive a lot of money. That's and, correct. And he wanted to help other people. He didn't 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 want it for himself. So he had he had some good motives. So that's probably a good point to bring up. When, um, back at the, in the early stages, clear back probably in 2002, 
he had a dream that there was an uh, envelope with over $300,000 in it and that uh, people in the area were very interested in pulling together a, a sort of a charitable fund to be used to, to, to help other people that just needed assistance in building maybe a food supply or an emergency preparedness type of thing. And he just felt like we would kind of oversee that, and so the money would come to us. And so as the years went by, he felt like since the game was not wrapping itself up, it was growing. And so there was one time we were walking through um, a, a lot that was being leveled for a housing community, and he scratched in the dirt with a stick for a million. And by this time, you know, he felt like it had grown that big, and then it just escalated from there. But, um, yeah, that's a good point to bring up. And so he did have good motives, and he did feel like this, this money was coming to us and that we would put it to very good use. But, you know, it came to the point where he felt like stricter and stricter um, rules were required of us in the game to win since it was not tying itself up. So here's the excerpt kind of about some of the items that had to be removed as far as he was concerned. It says, um, more and more items make their way unwillingly to the garage. There is an exodus of all sorts of items, from dishes to dressers, tarps to trampolines. It's like a beast we have to feed or it will devour us instead. Curtis is anxious to get rid of as many things as possible, assuring me that in the long run we'll get far more back than we ever gave away. They set everything that we donate aside, Curtis explains to me. Then they auction it off to the highest bidder. The more things we give, the more the pot will grow. So we win it back anyway. But why would anyone be interested enough in our stuff to actually bid on it and pay big money for it, I ask in disbelief. Because we're people of importance, Curtis reminds me as if for the hundredth time. There are people, a lot of people, that want to own something we used to own. Believe me, I know what I'm talking about, he adds when he sees me shaking my head no. Regardless of my disbelief, he continues to evaluate all our possessions for removal purposes. Didn't we get this couch from a single lady, Curtis asks? I know where this is headed. But I am living by faith, so out it goes into the garage, another sacrifice to the game gods. He takes, his, he takes an axe to two couches, the other one his mother gave us. The kids began to ask where everything is going, but I just shrug. It's all just gone. My mother taught me well that people are more important than things. So although letting go is difficult, it isn't impossible. And uh, Curtis would... Uh, He'd notice if a dark-colored car came by or a light-colored car, right? Dark-colored meant you had to get rid of it. Light-colored right. meant you could keep it. And it gets as, as specific as, I think, your son at one time, the only one he was speaking to at that time, moved his right. shoulder slightly to the left, and that meant can't, can't speak to him, I guess. That, that's when it kind of intensified. It came to a crisis point, didn't it? He, he stopped speaking to your children because he, right. he thought they were spies. That's correct. That's correct. Um, he just felt like as the rules progressed and became more and more difficult, that was one of the final tests that were was required, is that um, our children were spying 
for the opposing side. And so they had taken on personalities. Like my daughter's name begins with an M. And so someone on the opposing side has a name that begins with an M and has blonde hair. And so my daughter became her by proxy. And he refused to speak to her because he feels like it would give points to the wrong side. And I said, well, how is anyone going to know if you speak to her? You know, how how does anyone else know how to add up these points? And he says, well, I have to report. And I said, report to who? And he says, to the orchestrators of the game. Hmm. And I have no idea how he felt like he was reporting because he was always at home, except when he ran down to the local gas station. But that may have been how he reported. You know, it kind of has a little bit of a tone like in the movie A Beautiful Mind when... Hmm. um, John Nash was making up all those pamphlets and papers that he felt he was doing for the government and then putting them in that post office box, mm. you know, and so that kind of, I bring, guess, yeah, it kind of brings up a, a thought if, if I guess if you had been outside this watching this, like a movie, like beautiful mind, you probably would have, um, you probably would have acted sooner, right? Probably would have seen things more clearly. But but you're you're not. You're inside it, right? And and you're just trying to go on faith, as you say, and hope that things will resolve themselves. Well, and it's it's like I explained in the book. It's not like we're taught what the symptoms of schizophrenia are, are until and until we're able to, yeah, like you say, just maybe list them or write them down and then look them up. But I. I had no clue how how to coordinate the two. I mean, the only schizophrenic we knew of was a gentleman that had bushy hair and wore a big heavy coat every every day and walked down the streets mumbling to himself. So my husband even brought that up after his doctor appointment. I can't have schizophrenia. They walk down the street mumble to themselves, you know. And so it was just like there was there was nothing to to base anything on. We had we had no experience in it whatsoever. And so I don't know, even know if I was looking in from the outside. Even my parents that knew some things, even my daughter that had a psychology degree, even my sister that I had told tiny things to, they never suspected at all. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, it, and that brings up the, the idea of uh, kind of our, our perceptions, right? The stereotype. Um, if, yeah, if somebody's schizophrenic, true. they're going to be homeless or something, <laughs> marching down the street with bushy hair. But but that's that's not true, right? There's no, a, a lot of people. No, it's not. And it, you'd be amazed at how normal and and how how well they function in society. Um, just friendly. I mean, for the most part, until the very end, when he wouldn't talk to anyone. But so amiable and just um, just easy to talk to and. And they hold down a job, you know, and they they go to work, you know, everything. So it's really kind of a kind of a hard thing to detect if if it's so so slight like that. You know, there's some other situations where, you know, I guess it's a little it's a little more easy to detect, but this certainly wasn't. <laughs> and other situations where perhaps it could be more dangerous, where the delusion. Is- would lead to some danger with people around them. Curtis's happened to be, he's playing this game, and it's 
you know, it's, there's no immediate danger to people around him. No, we didn't ever feel uh, threatened or in danger, and I still don't. We're talking with Pauline Hansen. Uh, she lives in the uh, St. George area. Um, I it, moved from, but I used to live in St. George. Oh, okay, okay. So <laughs> you're still in southern Utah, I think, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, so at the time, uh, Curtis and Pauline Hansen were in the uh, St. George area, and uh, Curtis began exhibiting some strange behavior. The diagnosis in the end was paranoid schizophrenia. And uh, the, the subtitle of the book will give you some idea of uh, what's happened here. It's uh, happily married to a schizophrenic. The title is Patchwork Reality. And there'll be a book launch on February 15th at the Barnes & Noble in St. George from 1 to 4 p.m. It's available for pre-order right now at Amazon and Barnes & Noble launches on February 11th. Uh, and you're welcome to join the conversation. would love to hear your experience. Perhaps you've lived through something like this. And uh, how, how did you cope? What did, what did you do? Uh, your questions or comments at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So uh, what did your children think? That I'm sure they noticed uh, dads behaving strangely. <laughs> That's right. And there was a time where they were all milling around in the kitchen, and my daughter asked, well, why did you chop up the couches, Dad? And he didn't even answer. And he said, she said, well, are you going to answer me? And he says, it depends on who you are today. So in other words, whether you're the proxy person or my daughter. And he never spoke to her again after that. Mm-hmm. And so he was completely convinced, you know, that, that he wasn't supposed to. And so they are, they're asking me, well, why isn't Dad talking to me? Why are we getting rid of all of our possessions? And I'm sworn to secrecy, which was another thing that exasperated the problem and made it worse because I couldn't tell anyone I was sworn to secrecy, and I took that seriously. And so, so all this you know, escalated, and they're asking me, well, what's going on? For the most part, they had their life, and things were going uh, normally for the kids, so they weren't as affected, except the very end. That it's the last two months is really the only time that things just really whacked out, and for the for the rest of the time, it was really never anything that they could detect. It was always something that was just spoken to, between my husband and I. So, what finally precipitated you going to your parents to to seek help with with this? It was it was uh, you know nine years into it, but it you know it builds slowly and. You've explained some of the reasons why you didn't go sooner, but eventually you went to your parents and said, hey, can, you know, I need some help here. Well, I, they actually called me, and it's kind of a pretty fascinating part of the book. And um, I, I was at the very end of my rope, but still not knowing what to do, and my mom gave me a call, and she said, I... I feel like we really need to speak with you, but it needs to be with just you alone without the kids or your husband. And so we went to a park and we talked, and I was still in secret mode because uh, I, I took that seriously. So I still, it took me a while to divulge it, but they, they were very kind and careful, and they finally slowly prodded it out of me. And then I, the dam burst, and I just let it all out. And it's in the book. You'll find how that 
came about and how I was able to finally just let go. And then it ended up being my lifeline. And the reason that they contacted me is my husband sent them a letter, which I had no idea of. And he said, well, I feel like when my dad was uh, at the dentist a few years back, he feels like that they planted tracking devices in his molar teeth. And so that was a big red flag to my dad. Well, people don't normally think things like that. And I think there might, we might want to look into this. And so that became the catalyst is that letter. It was actually something my husband did that actually brought, you know, brought it about where we could detect it. Uh, but I guess the, the theory, working theory was uh, chemical exposure of some kind? That's correct. My dad used to work as a, cab- a cabinet maker, and he worked with very strong glue, and so he knows the effects it can have. And he said there was one time working with the glue that he had, he completely started hallucinating, and it scared him so much that he actually changed careers. And so he said, I know what the chemicals that Curtis works at, with at the high school, there's a possibility that there's, you know, could be something going on, maybe brain damage, maybe there's something we could detect if we got him to a doctor. And and so even at that point, it was still, like you say, maybe chemical related rather than any type of a mental illness. That's got to be a big relief to you to finally to tell someone oh, know, and be able to share was. that with someone. Yeah. Um, We're talking with Pauline Hansen. The book is Patchwork Reality, Happily Married to a Schizophrenic. It's the story of Curtis and Pauline Hansen, their five children, for 14 years of their marriage, the first 14 years. They had a a great marriage. Um, Then nine years, beginning in uh, in about 2001, uh, Curtis began uh, acting strangely, talking about this game, a test to prove their faithfulness to each other. We're going to talk after a break about the diagnosis and I'll ask Pauline Hansen what uh, advice she has, perhaps for other families going through something similar, and uh, how how they're doing now. Uh, the book Patchwork uh, Reality, and uh, Pauline Hansen is my guest. More following the break. One of my favorite memories um, was last year singing in this little small chapel, and we hit this one chord, and it was just like we were one voice, and it was just so beautiful, and it was just pure freedom. That's how it feels to sing in the choir that we're featuring on this week's From the Top. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, and hear their beautiful sound this week. Friday afternoons at 2. Waste not. Don't use running water to thaw food. Defrost food in the refrigerator for water efficiency and food safety. Another water efficiency tip, only run your washing machine and dishwasher with full loads. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Pauline Hansen. Uh, and uh, it's the story, this book is, Patchwork Reality of, uh, of a Family. Curtis and Pauline Hansen, they're five children, living in the St. George area at the time. A great 14 first years of their marriage. Then uh, it's followed by nine years of uh, some problems. Curtis uh, begins exhibiting strange behavior. Uh, finally, a diagnosis of uh, paranoid uh, schizophrenia. That's what I want to talk about uh, now. Uh, but first of all, how did you get Curtis to the, to the doctor? I, I know a lot of people 
Um, if they don't think anything's wrong, they're you know they're not going to go to the doctor. It was hard, and I I actually enlisted my dad's and my brother-in-law's help, and they offered to come over and sit down with him and explain the situation to him and say that they would really like him to see a doctor. And the minute they left, my husband said, I'm not crazy. (laughs) And I said, I know you're not. But um, the only way I was able to talk him into going to the doctor is that he has some sports injuries. And he said, if I can get those looked at, then I'll go. And so when we first went to the appointment, sure enough, I let him, you know, talk with the doctor about things that he felt like needed to be fixed. And I had typed up pages, though, of of the symptoms that Curtis was exhibiting so that the doctor would know without me having to say so much in front of my husband what was going on. And so we finally got down to the the nitty gritty. (laughs) What did Curtis think of the diagnosis? He felt like that the doctor was in on the game and that he was told to pronounce that diagnosis. Um, He was completely in denial. He knew what he knew, and there was no one that was going to tell him different. Yeah, I could I could see how that'd be the case. Did he? Uh, so how'd you get him? How'd you get him out of it? It took a long time. Like we went to a therapist three times, but he wasn't budging at all. We were trying to see if he would accept medication, but he absolutely refused. And I know when he's stubborn, I know I can't make him budge. So, um, so for a while he kept a hold of the game and kept, kept believing in it. And he refused for a while after we moved to speak to my youngest daughter still, even though he had began to talk to other people and I finally had to lay it on the line. Okay. I just won't talk to you then. And I had, I just really had to be strict with him on quite a few things to pull him out of it. So it, it, I think it's been building over time, and this probably accelerated it. You've, you've morphed from the, the submissive wife that your mother and grandmother were to, to quite assertive. Yes, just by, by necessity, I've had to become kind of the leader of the family and just kind of take control of quite a few things just because of, of, the, you know, what, of the way my husband is. <laughs> Uh, all through this, you, you you never thought of divorce? You, you're always going to stay with Curtis, you, you, you know, uh, through all this? Absolutely. I, I've i never, never considered divorce. I, I feel like it's just one of those trials that families go through. Everybody goes through something. And, I, you know, I love my husband too much. We built such a life together, and we have five children together, and, and it's Another reason is I just can't imagine leaving him to drift and not really have an anchor. I, I would break my heart for one thing. <laughs> you know, I just love him too much to do that. But he, you know, he needs someone that understands and someone that's going to take care of him. And I feel I feel actually privileged to do that. And I just really cherish cherish him and and you know want him in my life. What has been the reaction from maybe extended family community? I'm sure you, you said uh, Curtis uh, had this perception of, you know, people with schizophrenia or people people who are homeless maybe walking down the street uh, exhibiting odd behavior out of, out of doors. And there is a stigma 
sometimes there to this. Is. Did Did you yeah. worry about that? Yeah, and there, you know, that's one thing we would like to do is to shatter the stigma and help people realize that recovery is possible. But um, I, 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 I was concerned. It took me, I think, almost a year to finally tell the community about his diagnosis. There was only a couple of people that I had told, and that was almost of necessity, like with my work and with his work. Um, but other than that, it was just something I kept to myself because I was I was worried about, you know, how he would feel every, about everyone knowing. But then I realized a small community like this, we always pull together, and I knew that they would they would take it well and they would be kind and considerate about it. So I felt it was better they knew just so that when they were speaking with him or, you know, they didn't ask him to do things that was going to be hard for him, you know, like speak in front of a group or something, which he's terrified of or, you know, something like that. And so I felt they needed to know. And and luckily, they took it really well. There's still some of the l- little things that will go on, like, oh, I, I heard about your husband. I won't tell anybody, but, I, you know, I hope everything's going well. And I said, well, everybody's going to know soon anyway. Mm. Yeah, I guess I guess but. a small community, that's the way it is, good and bad. <laughs> um, so uh, you used the word uh, a little while ago, recovery. And mm-hmm. what does that look like with 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 Curtis? Do you consider him recovered? Um, is... I consider him recovering, and I'm just so grateful that our circumstances are what they are. I, and as far as you know, any advice I might give, it may be different in everyone's situation. But I b- truly believe that moving him to somewhere with very few people and very low stress has been probably the biggest thing, help that we could have, have done for him. It was not necessarily on purpose. It was just sort of our lifeline and what the, our only you know, hope, only place really to go at the time. But once he was here, he loved it so much he wanted to stay, so we did. And, through, you know, month after month, year after year, his improvement increases. And it's, good, it's so good to see that. It's like I explained, it's probably about, one, oh, when we first moved, it was about once a week at least that he would have, you know, one of those off days, they call it, <laughs> where you can tell the symptoms flare up and and they're not quite the same. But then it became, became every two weeks, and now it's really only about once a month. Hmm. And and through this all, you know, Curtis is Curtis, right? With 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 the schizophrenia, without it, you know, whatever. And that's what my kids say. They say, "Hey, you know, we love our dad. He's our dad. It doesn't matter that he has a mental illness. <laughs> that's not what he is. He's hmm. not schizophrenic. He has schizophrenia." What's what's his attitude now? What do you, he has goals he's working for? What what does he what does he think about the uh, his his schizophrenia? He's much more accepted accepting it. Like I think since I've written the book, I think we might have tiptoed around it a lot more had I not decided to write the book. And so it's been so much better to be able to just 
bring it out in the open and talk about it. So he'll even joke about it now, which is kind of funny, <laughs> you know, because he's definitely a jokester anyway. And so that makes it more light, and it makes it so that we can talk about it. Like he even said the other day, he says, he said, I feel like I'm getting better. I feel like I don't have such wrong thinking, and I don't say such wrong things as I used to. And for him to recognize that in himself, I think is pretty miraculous. What is what is all this done to your religious faith? This, I mean, this could have damaged it, I suppose. You you put a lot of trust in <laughs> in in your husband, which you know, no fault of his own, was you you could say betrayed. And that's an interesting question because I don't think I've been as much affected as he has. So he felt like he put so much trust in his dreams and he felt so inspired and and, and like everything was revealed to him and he prayed and prayed and prayed for for so long every night and to have that just almost slap him in the face. He quit praying. He he actually doesn't trust himself anymore. It's not necessarily that he doesn't trust God. It's that he doesn't trust himself. And so it's it's been just recently he started reading scriptures again, and I've caught him praying a couple of times, but just within the last month. It's taking him a long time to to get back into that. Uh, what are what are your purposes in writing the book? What what do you hope well, that people get from it? Well, when you know, just the fact that I went nine years with something like this going undetected, I thought, wow, you know, if someone else could pick this up and actually recognize symptoms in someone they loved or someone they knew, um, how great would that be to be able to detect that sooner? And if that's, you know, unlikely that someone would pick my book up, I know that anything that happens in people's lives, we seek for hope. We seek for someone that may have gone through something similar and see how they dealt with it and see if maybe they had a, by chance, maybe a happy ending. And that's exactly what I've done. I've ordered two or three or, you know, books about people that, you know, have been related to schizophrenics and, and just to see how their story went. And so at least, you know, at the very least, my book could be a resource for people just seeking hope or wanting understanding. The book is Patchwork Reality, Happily Married to a Schizophrenic. Uh, Pauline Hansen is the author. Uh, it'll launch on February 11th. You can pre-order right now at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And the official book launch will be held at the Barnes & Noble in St. George on February 15th from 1 to 4 in the afternoon. We just have a couple of minutes uh, left. Looks like we might have a call coming in here. You're welcome to get a quick email in as well if you would like to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. I suppose w- with the diagnosis comes you you sort of join a community, don't you? You, you uh, hopefully reach out to other people that might be in your same situation. Yes, that's true. And I, I would welcome, you know, people call, you know, emailing me and just giving me their experience and if they have questions or anything like that. Uh, so how how to reach you? What's the best way? You can reach me at Pauline Hansen at PaulineHanson.com and my website is 
www.pollyanhanson.com, and it has all my contact information on there. Okay, looks like our caller didn't want to go on the air, so hopefully they will contact you directly. That's uh, Pauline Hansen at PaulineHanson.com? Yes. And the website is PaulineHanson.com. The book, once again, is Patchwork Reality, Happily Married to a Schizophrenic. Very interesting story, and uh, hopefully this will help uh, other people. Pauline Hansen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show, Tom. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're uh, delighted to have you on. Um, and uh, good luck. The, the book launches on uh, February 11th. I'm sure... Uh, You'll be getting some response from this official book launch, Barnes & Noble, St. George, February 15th from 1 to 4 in the afternoon. This is available for pre-order right now at Amazon and and Barnes & Noble. Uh, Again, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we hope you join us tomorrow for Access Utah. For uh, producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Chamber Music Society of Logan, bringing back the New York Woodwind Quintet with music by Mozart and a host of contemporary composers. Tomorrow, Thursday, January 30th at 7.30 on the USU campus. Information is at cmslogan.org. And by Colligan Water of Cache Valley, family-owned and operated for more than 62 years, providing Colligan bottled water, salt delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey Colligan Man, service from the man in blue, online at logan.colliganman.com. Utah writer Gina Wickmore. I'm about to sort through my spouse's half of the closet to see what needs to go to the DI. He never discards anything, so about once a decade I have to go through his stuff and do a clothing, footwear, and backpack triage. I'm not too fussy when he wears old or unfashionable clothes or clothes that are falling apart. I can live with that. It's the redundancy issue that dominates my discard decisions. My husband, dear as he is, is compelled to possess about a dozen jackets and coats, 20 pairs of shoes, and about two dozen kinds of backpacks. I first noticed this tendency when we were newly married. I happened to mention there were four jackets of his hanging in the hall closet, and they all seemed identical. Not so, Vin said defensively. One coat, he explained, gently turning it inside out, had a mere cloth lining and was good to about 50 degrees. The next had a wool lining and was good to about 30. The next had some fleece in it and was good down to zero, and the last one was lined with Gore-Tex, or some such space-age material, and would be good in Antarctica. Since we were living in Palo Alto at the time, the last three jackets seemed a bit of overkill, but I said nothing in pursuit of marital bliss. Finn's tendency to be prepared for weather changes in increments of less than 10 degrees Fahrenheit persists to this day. At this very moment, there are five jackets hanging on the coat rack by the front door. They range from a light, recycled rubber tire fuzzy to a down-mountain hardware parka, good for 40 below and counting. The same thing goes for his shoes. Lining his side of the closet is a bewildering array of sports, running, semi-dress, and full-dress shoes. Seven pairs of Keens, three Echoes, three Nikes, two Merrells, three Borns, three pairs of hiking boots, high ankle, medium ankle, low ankle, one or two pairs of Chaco sandals, and at least one pair of Nakona cowboy boots. Compared to Vin, Imelda Marcos was a piker. The final blow to our closet space are the two or three dozen varieties of backpack he owns. They range from the lightweight nylon throw-over-the-shoulder kind to the REI backpack for a winter over in Alaska. 
In between are the day packs, the two-day packs, the week pack, and the full gonna climb Mount Everest backpack that Sir Edmund Hillary would have lusted for. These different weights and sizes and strengths are needed, Vin assures me, because one must have the pack that is distinctly suited for the type of trip one is taking. This is all very alien to me. I have one fuzzy jacket, one dress coat, and one parka. I have five pairs of shoes, and I have exactly one backpack that I have used in Italy, France, Peru, Mexico, Zions, and Vermont. I'm trying to understand Vin's nuanced approach to these accoutrements so I can compete, especially since I've noticed a small but growing encroachment of shoes, backpacks, and jackets drifting over to my side of the closet. That's why I say thank heavens for the DI. Now my only challenge is to get there before he notices but given the circumstances, that should be a while. This is Gina Wickwar. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. And listeners in Price can tune in to KCEU 89.7. Be sure to stay tuned for Living on Earth coming up in the 10 o'clock hour, followed by performance today at 11. Thank you for listening to Access Utah.